Hello and welcome to this, the fourth in a series of Conversations with Faber Poets. My name is George Miller, and I'm delighted to say that my guest in this programme is David Harsand. He left school, which he'd hated, at 16 and became a bookseller. Later, he was a publisher for over a decade, until he gave that up in order to write full-time. His new collection, Night, is a tenth in a career in which Harsant has garnered a string of literary awards, including the forward prize for his 2005 collection, Legion, which was also shortlisted for both the Whitbread and the T.S. Eliot Award. Beside the poetry, Harsant has also written opera libretti, crime thrillers and television scripts, but it's clearly in his poetry that he is most deeply imaginatively engaged. Writing in Poetry Review of his selected poems, Michael Hulse said, David Harsant has become a poet of immense power, nuance and resource, enriching his textures with high culture and with folk and ballad features. Only with Ted Hughes gone could our principal anthropologist come into his own. Harsant is our master of the human, red in tooth and claw. When I met David shortly before Christmas, I began with a remark of his I'd seen quoted at the time of his forward prize in 2005. He said that poetry was both deep and crucial. I asked him what he'd meant by that. I suppose I must have meant in my life, although I'd like to think it, would, it could become deep and crucial in the lives of many people. Poetry uses language in a way that reveals much more if you look for those revelations than the language that obfuscates. And I'm talking now about the language of politicians, perhaps, or the language of you know, just quotidian language, informational language. But I think what I was really trying to say was that for me, you know, poetry isn't a pastime, it's not even an engagement, it's a way of life. I think poetry is more important, is a more important constant in my life than anything else. It's to a large extent my way of interpreting and seeing the world, not just interpreting it as a, as a practicing poet, but as a reader of poetry. There are lines that move me to my quick and always will. And it has to do, I think, with a way of seeing the world, a way of experiencing the world too. There are things that you never get over. There are things that you should never get over, like like reading, I don't know, Keats' late odes. Or I remember when I read The Like Wake Dirge, it was like being dynamited. So I suppose if you've a sensibility that on, on which poetry has that sort of an effect, it's difficult to see that uh, poetry is something that should be or might be confined to being read at a funeral or a marriage or something of that kind. When, when I was, um, here's where it started. When I was about uh, 10, I think I was, I had this fall. I, f I fell down the stairwell at about 25 feet onto a concrete floor. So I was banged up for a bit. And uh, I was on my way to Sunday school, actually. It was terribly unfair of God to actually visit that on me when I was... But um, so I was in bed for a while. And uh, although I came from a working-class family, they were all great readers of books. My grandmother went to the library and came back with some books for me to read while I was recovering and one of them was a sort of bumper book for boys. It was, you know, stories of Daring Do and uh, Baden-Powell and Arctic Adventures and that kind of thing. But between the stories were these poems. 
and I didn't know what they were. I just knew that they were so powerful to me and so compelling that the stories were nothing, but the poems were everything. And I said to my grandmother, could you, could you go back to the library and see if you can get a book just of these, just of these poems? And so she went and she asked, and the librarian must have known what she wanted. And she came back with Quilla Cooch's Oxford Book of Ballads, and they were border ballads. And I just have never recovered from that. I have never recovered from that. There are still lines of Tam Lin that I can't read without every hair on my head standing up. You know that thing of Hausman's? Was it Hausman who said that uh, there were certain lines he hadn't to think of when he was shaving because it made the hairs lie the wrong way for the razor? I, I know exactly what he meant. And once I had had this sort of, you know, baptism of fire with the, with the border ballads, I was a reader of poetry and had ambitions to write poetry. And I wanted to write poetry like that, really. And in fact, there is a ballad in Night, which I have to say is a hell of a surprise. I was asked by a literary magazine to, um, to take, uh, to, well, they had a feature, a feature going that, uh, ask poets to talk about influences and then write something in, in the manner of, of that influence. So if it was done, you might have written a sonnet on it. And I said, well, I couldn't possibly write a ballad. It would be not possible for me to do that because, I mean, it, it's just too strong and too powerful in me to, to try to copy or imitate that. So what I did was I gave them a little bit of a Cornish play that I was fiddling with and bringing into English. It, it was about the death of Cain. And they were perfectly happy with that, it seemed. And then about a month or two later, um, I was bizarrely, I was shaving, rather like Houseman. And the line, first lines of this ballad came into my head, and I just pursued it. And I never thought for a moment that it would be anything other than a bagatelle. And it turned into something quite else. And I had no idea whether I should publish it or not publish it. I didn't know it was good or bad. didn't know what to think about it. So I sought the opinions of friends who said, it's fine, you must... You must publish it. So it was the border ballads that turned me inside out. And so I was 10, 11 years old. And it's always been thus. I then moved on to David's new collection, Night, and began by commenting on the near impossibility of writing a blurb that summed up a poetry collection, and yet readers desire to get some clue as to what it is about. I suppose they do. I mean, do I read blurbs? Um, I suspect I do read blurbs, yes. I mean, I don't write them. I didn't write this. Um, it was written by Matthew Hollis, and uh, I think I, I had a fiddle with it. <laughs> but uh, it's so difficult, isn't it? I mean, it's along the lines of, you might remember that Don Patterson and Claire Brown edited um, a little anthology of pieces by various poets who contributed to the Poetry Book Society Bulletin, and it was called Don't Ask Me What I Mean. And I think every poet understood that title extremely well. I remember a long time ago, there was a wonderful New Yorker cartoon, which was um, an interview situation on a guy sitting with this colossal tome on his lap. And the interviewer was saying, and if you could boil your book down to a single sentence, <laughs> what would it be? And it is immensely difficult. When you're asked to say what a poem means, or when somebody's puzzled by something that you've written, they might say, what did you mean by that? You know, I'm always put to saying, well, the poem says what it means. If I were prepared to reduce it to a prose sense or something more succinct, 
then I, I don't think I'd have written the poem I, I, <laughs> um, because it, it wouldn't have come to me in that way. It came to me in the way that it came to me and it's irreducible really and, and unfathomable except in its own terms. So I won't ask you what the new collection means and I won't even ask you what it's about but let me ask you it's about six years since your, your previous collection Legion was published how does, it, how does a collection accrete? How does it begin to come together? Because obviously there are sequences in this new collection and there are major landmarks within it so how did what is what is that that process you know once you've finished one collection that the new one begins to take shape somehow i usually find that when i've sent a book to press and when it's irrecoverable <laughs> there tends to be a fallow period um and i haven't since this book went to press i hadn't had a whiff of a poem for about three months though i did actually finish a poem last night well, I didn't finish it. I got it into a sort of shape where I can continue to look at it and let it suggest itself to me in different ways. I've, I've often written, I've often, I haven't recently, but previously I've worked in book-long sequences. Mr. Punch, for example, News from the Front, uh, or else, you know, perhaps sequences that, that took half a book. Marriage was such, uh, Lepus was a smaller, shorter sequence, but, uh, nonetheless, they were the two sequences that made up uh, married, the book Marriage. Legion, of course, is, is a sequence. And not only that, the poems in Legion that are not part of that sequence do form a continuum. Some of them do in any event, not all of them. In this book, uh, what I found happened was that I wrote at length um, but it's a long poem. It's a poem in excess of 700 lines. In fact, I, I think it's 749 lines, actually. It's a poem called Elsewhere, with which the book ends. And then there are little suites of poems, for example, um, the, the Queen Bee Canticles, little suite of poems. And there are some poems which were commissioned by the verb, all of which have the word blood in the title. And they sort of leak through the book. So there is a sense of a continuum or of a stretch. More than that, I think, there are what in filmic terms are called pickups uh, that run right through the book. And, and I didn't know that was going to happen, but they're, they're images, they are words, they are little descriptions of things or, or idioms that appear in different places and have different have a different weight i didn't know that was going to happen but i often don't know what's going to happen there are people i know who make sketches for poems and who have as it were an idea for a poem and i don't think that's ever happened to me and i did once suggest to harrison Burtwistle when he and i were talking about the way that we worked and we both agreed that we did what paul clay referred to as taking a line for a walk because of course that equally well applies to painting and to poetry and indeed to music and i suggested to harry that we might write a, an opera called flying by the seat of my pants <laughs> because i do, i do wait for poems i mean this will sound awfully pretentious i don't mean it to but i can't think of another way of saying it i do wait for poems to as it were deliver themselves um it's not quite what ian hamilton referred to as being of the miraculous persuasion 
I'm quite happy to force a poem a little bit sometimes to sort of nudge it into being or to, not, that's not quite true, to seek it, to look for it because I've got the whiff, you know, I've got, I've got a whiff of a poem. What, what, what does that whiff feel like? Is it, is, is it a, a, a little cluster of words or a, a line, as you say, that you can, you can take somewhere that you don't know where? Yeah, it's, for me, it's often an image. And what happens is the image will start to accrue words um, or a line will suggest itself. A line will tag the image and, and I'll proceed from there. It's a, after that, it's a process of accumulation and until you reach a certain point where there is a sort of, you know, there, there is an intellectual aspect to it. I mean, there is a, a thought through aspect to it because you can see what you're up to. And when you get to the point where you can sort of see what you're up to, that's really rather exciting because it, it allows for more invention in a kind of way. That's the seeking part, I think. But the whiff of a poem, I think, you know, I suppose one would might read something or see something or some sort of a combination of words will provoke the notion that, that there might be something in this, you know. You talk about a phrase or a, a cluster of words which has got this power to, to generate a poem, but is part of the intellectual process that you mentioned the sort of bringing it into form, the perhaps something which is which is more inchoate, bringing it into something which is more metrical, more structured. Yes, I think I think it is. That is to say, once you have something approaching a not not approaching a shape, but once you've got some lines, then the thing does become cumulative. That is to say, you know, one line will lead to another, and you'll progress an idea, or you'll progress an image, or you'll see what that's going to turn into, what it's going to become, what what what. Uh, metamorphosis might occur. I'm quite often drawn on through the poem by rhyme and slant rhyme and, and so on, which I, which I use a lot and which I like. Um, I think poetry should be musical. Verlaine, wasn't it, who said music before all else. I, I think I quite often judge something to be a poem because of its musicality, as opposed to just being a piece of writing where the lines don't quite reach the edge of the page. But I have a sort of quite idiosyncratic attitude towards rhyme. I use slant rhyme a lot. I use, I've used internal rhyme a good deal in, in the new book in Night. And slant rhyme, slant internal rhyme as well. But I also, in the long poem elsewhere in particular, I, I find that what I discover is a kind of music where sometimes a full rhyme or a half rhyme will become a couplet. Uh, in other words, there will be two lines that either truly rhyme or slant rhyme. And then there'll be a pickup of that rhyme, which might be a true rhyme or a slant rhyme, four or five lines on. And then there'll be overlaps with other words, slant rhymes and full rhymes. And sometimes the music intensifies when you get a cluster of rhyme or half rhyme together. And sometimes it's quite spread. So you're hearing an echo. You think, at least I hope you think, <laughs> um, that's um, satisfying in a kind of way because it's an echo of something that happened eight lines ago. Um, but I'll probably tie that in with a slant rhyme. Now, all this sounds very organized and, um, and intended and worked out, but in fact, it's almost all instinctive. I discover I've done it, however unlikely that might seem. 
uh, not when the poem is finished, but I, I, I then see what I'm kind of up to. And, and then I suppose I really start to work it in that way, but, but it's still instinctive. I still find the rhymes and the half rhymes will crop up in this sort of blanket stitch way. Does that make sense? Blanket stitch. You know, sometimes the length between the stitches is shorter, sometimes longer, sometimes overlapping. And that's become very important to me. Music in verse has become very important to me. I can't hear it as a poem unless it sings, really, no matter what else it might be doing. The collection opens with a sequence of poems about gardens, set in gardens, around dusk, when the light, light is fading. How, how did that sequence generate? Do you remember how it, how it started and went presumably from being one idea for one poem into being a, a suite of, of related poems? It did. I, I, I have this um, ambivalent attitude towards gardens. Um, I think they're sort of over-civilized, and, and they're, they're one of the ways in which we demonstrate a desire to kind of tame things. I mean, it's sort of, it's nature reined in, isn't it, a garden, you know? I, I once wrote a little quatrain, I think, I won't better remember it now, but it, it had to do with, I was writing Green Opera, with Bert Whistle, we, we, it never actually came together. Although it has now been set by an Australian composer called Alan. No, he's not an English composer who lives in Australia called Alan Lawrence. One, one of the lines was something. Uh, it was to, it was dedicated to 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 my children, to uh, to to the to the next generation down, or maybe the next two generations down. And it started with some kind of you know kind of bandits of the inner city footings, wreckers of gardens, you know. Um, <laughs> in any event, and I hate gardening. Uh, it's boring beyond belief. And I have quite a large garden. Uh, um, and the end of it was chaos and bramble and, and nettles um, under which lay children's toys and an old plastic paddling pool for quite a long time. I think the neighbors were very upset by this. And then for some reason, I can't remember exactly why, my wife and I got very fed up with it and spent some money we didn't have on having somebody come around and, and change it. So it went from being semi-wilderness to being sort of very ordered. And at about that point, all these dark garden poems got released. It was quite strange. And they just bred one another. They really did. There's one called The Garden Hammock, which in fact was written because I, I was lying in a hammock in um, a wonderful garden in the Sabine Hills just outside Rome in a hammock reading reading Edith Wharton. And I wrote it about a year later, I think. These things stay, don't they? Buried, waiting to surface. Maybe I could get you to read one of the garden poems mm. now. The Garden in Sunlight. Go by white poppies, white tulips, white flags. Go by the white willow arch. Go by the apple tree its full white crop. Go by the pond where white-eyed fish slide by deeper each day, then out to the lawn, its trackless white, a mirror image of the trackless sky. But think now, after you've set foot, you're on a wish and a promise, a drift in white slow creep away and over the edge though something takes you straight to those little spoil heaps, bone that breaks to ash under your hand. And you backtrack, hoping for sight of the house, perhaps, or the garden gate, or the street. 
but it's white on white, however hard you try. And a hum in the air, white noise, which could be some rash report of you. Figment, divertimento, little white lie. Thank you. I did want to ask you about whiteness, because after I read that poem, I made connections with several pieces in Legion where whiteness also figures prominently, and then I began to see it more and more. And it seemed to me that it it was a recurring value in your poetry. And I wondered what you what you felt about about whiteness and its occurrences. Yeah, I think the whiteness in Legion is to do with it's one of the Cornish poems, isn't it? It's it's one of the sea poems. Um, the white eyes of my children, white of the sea wall, etc., etc. There's also snow in some of the in some of the war poems. There's, oh, yeah. there's a, there are variations on on That's whiteness right. there too, yes. and, and again white eyes. Yes, I don't think it's a pleasant white. I mean, I don't think it's a reassuring or a likable white. I think it probably has to do with things like sun blindness, and. Um, the absence of colour being allied to a sort of blankness, an emotional blankness, and the notion of things anemic. You know, the white-eyed fish seem to me immensely threatening <laughs> creatures. And the fact that everything that in the garden that should be colour is white, because the garden's under sunlight, and of course, strong sunlight will blench colour from, from things. But I think it has to do with a form of insipidity, like those paintings by Mantegna, um, in which things are are white or near white or monochromatic. I find it sinister. It, it seemed to me sometimes to point to, to, to the whiteout. It seemed to me to, ha- to have the same sort of value and blankness as, as mm. death. That seemed that seemed to me to be one possible terminus that it was tending towards. Oh yes, death. That old subject. Uh, um, yes, that's not an unreasonable notion. It has to do with a form of cancellation, doesn't it? You know, I just find it threatening. It's to do with not being able to find the edge of things, and it's to do with um, that sort of bleached notion that, that there's a form of desperation about it, I think. I suppose, in a sense, it's not for me to analyze. <laughs> I, I want to ask you maybe just about one more little one of these pickups that you mentioned that occur throughout the collection the word smudge I noticed oh. frequently coming up in this collection I didn't count but it, it seemed to come up quite regularly and again I wondered what the appeal of that notion of perception that was that was blurred, that was indistinct, that was perhaps in some way tarnished, yeah. had. I think it's, 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 it's a bit allied to white, I think, in a strange kind of way. Um, I didn't realize I'd use smudge that often. I, I mean, I knew I'd used it more than once, but it wasn't really deliberate. I mean, I used it when it presented itself to be used. And that's one of the things that I think I did in the book. I didn't worry about repetition, and I didn't worry about those pickups. I rather welcomed them, actually. I, I mean, I thought they 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 provided a kind of um, continuum of images throughout the book, and 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 also a kind of narrative continuum in a strange kind of way that uh, that I rather liked, and I liked them referring forward and backward to each other. 
Yeah, I think smudge is threatening too. I mean, because of, because it's because it's indistinct, uh, or because of its notion of things being indistinct, and and of a sort of um, a sort of vacuousness that we can't really afford. It's interesting that you should talk about death in that respect, um, because the notion of things smudging up is, I think, quite. Uh, Quite frightening and quite redolent to me of of um, of of the notion of fading. I mean, anyone who has been at the bedside of somebody who hasn't long to live might well think that the word smudge has real weight and that there's real fear in it. And I think that's what I think. I wonder, David, if I could get you to read the poem "Ghosts" and then mm. maybe. Talk about what that leads on to. Ghosts. They bring with them a coldness as tradition demands, and a light, dry odour of rot, much like worm in wood, and bring a chorus of cries to fill the air as if it were birdsong, and bring in their open hands tokens of themselves, a letter, a snapshot, and bring some trace of their point of departure, a smudge on the shoe, a stain on the sleeve, and bring the disguise they lived under, stitched with their names, hoping you'll give them the nod, hoping you'll recognise something perhaps of the old times, the fun and games, while they shuffle up as if they stood on the edge of night, so a nudge would tip them over and bring a dew of death that settles on picture frames, on pelmets, on clothes in the closet, on books, on your eyelash, to make a prism through which you get a broken image of what must be a stage set of the peaceable kingdom, a front for that place you only ever find in dreams, its undrinkable rivers, its scrubland of snarls and hooks, horizons gone askew, beasts hamstrung and walking on their hocks. And bring their long-lost hopes, which they lay at your feet. Then stand back, stand apart, hairless, soft-skinned, their eyes bright blue like the eyes of the newborn, and bearing a look of matchless sorrow, as would for sure stop the heart of whoever it is they take you for. Thank you. That poem, to me, seemed to highlight two preoccupations, which I, I thought I detected in this collection, one of which was dreams and the perceptions of dreams, and the other was the, the return, the, the idea of the past sort of coming back, floating up. Yeah, that's very perceptive. Well, the peaceable kingdom that I mentioned in that poem is, of course, the peaceable kingdom that uh, everyone knows about, but it's also a dream I had 25 years ago. And I had a dream of a river and a calm place and rather beautifully, quite brightly colored animals cropping the grass and drinking from the stream. And I can't remember anything else from it, except that while I was having the dream, there was a deep sense of peace, 
And when I woke from the dream, I worried endlessly about what lay behind, what had seemed to me, when after I woken up, what seemed to me to be a facade, like a stage set. And that's where that image comes from 25 years later or so. I do, I, well, I'm sure that this is just a commonplace, but um, if I'm working on a poem, I tend to dream about it. I think everyone does that. The past, the past that I construct in, let's say, elsewhere, is an invention as much as everything in my work is an invention. I'm not, a, I'm not, not in any sense an autobiographical poet. And apart from the occasional prop, um, like the end of my garden or something, <laughs> uh, which isn't a real prop. It's not a, it, I mean, I'm not writing about, you know, anything that lies there or anything that, uh, or anything that lies there. Uh, uh, anything that is there or deceives, in other words. But some, something about the garden as it used to be and the garden as it then was, sort of tidy, squared away, rather likable in a sort of way. But, but also mysteriously threatening, and I'm not sure why. But nonetheless, it, it, it's clearly not a poem that has anything to do with my being in that garden. It's a poem about gardens. So the past I construct, just as I constructed the gardens of the garden hammock, um, the, the garden goddess, garden sunlight, and so on, garden of fading light is another poem from that sequence. So the past is a construct. And just as when I was writing book-long sequences, and who knows, I might write another book-long sequence for all I know, but when I was, uh, my purpose really was to use a lyrical vocabulary, to maintain, if you like, a lyrical vocabulary in the face of being obliged to construct a lengthy narrative. So the notion of the short poem which hung around the sort of poets who were in some way connected with the review or with Ian Hamilton, who was a close and dear friend of mine, didn't really interest me that much. That is to say that the discipline of the short poem didn't really interest me that much. And I didn't actually really write very many short poems. I wrote one or two short poems, well, half a dozen or so perhaps. But what really interested me was the way in which short poems might become beads on a necklace. And then the poems became, in fact, anything but short. <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to say they were massively long, but I mean, they would often, they would often um, uh, go over the page. But what I realized I was up to was creating quite a complex narrative, um, peopling it. Um, I was interested in characterization. Um, I wanted to create this fiction, but I wanted just the just the intense moments from that fiction from which from which the rest could be inferred and that allowed me to maintain a lyrical vocabulary so that's what i've been up to so just as those narratives um news from the front for example um, or mr punch were constructs they were inventions and i moved from narrative point to narrative point and made it up as i went along or had it made up for me as it occurred so the past that I construct, particularly in Elsewhere, in this long poem with which the book ends, but also in poems like the poems, all of which have the word blood in the title, which uh, leak through the book, I'm inventing character and I'm inventing incident. And none of it is anything remotely to do with my life. 
I'm accepting so factors, of course, it's got everything to do with the life of the mind and I suppose to some degree my experiential life, but it's certainly not autobiographical in the sense that I'm drawing on incidents from my life or people in my life or uh, anything that's identifiable in my life. When you do readings, is that a, a misunderstanding that you have to keep getting over? Because I'd, I imagine there's quite a widespread belief that there is quite a, an autobiographical relationship <clears throat> between the, the poetic voice and the, the life of the poet still. Yeah, I, I think probably that is the case. Um, people assume that you draw on experience. Uh, well, you don't. You draw on experience of experience. You, you draw on the business of experiencing. Well, I don't draw on experience. I mean, I could never imagine, for example, writing um, uh, you know, a poem that, uh, that had to do with being in love or that addressed somebody I was in love with. I mean, the whole idea is anathema to me, actually. When I published Legion, people did occasionally used to ask me whether I'd ever heard a shot fired in anger. I mean, they assumed I might have been in a war zone, I suppose, at some stage or another. And I used to say, no, no, this is this is a fiction, and and you must decide whether or not it convinces you. You know, it, it it came to me in the way that it came to me without my bidding, and I was taken aback by it because I'm not a public poet, and I and I never have been, and I never will be. But there are certain things I think that concern one. I can't live in the world in isolation. I'm not an ivory towerist, as it were, and these poems came to me quite as a surprise. But no, I, I I did used to occasionally say that my elder daughter lived in Kensal Green and. You know, there was often a chance of gunfire up there, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> but. Uh, so, so what do you think it was that was working on your imagination that allowed you to, to produce what, which, which, which are very convincing <laughs> to someone who hasn't been in a war zone himself? Well, what happened was that I was commissioned by Joe Shapcott to write a poem that had to uh, have something to do with, it was when she was a writer in residence at the Royal Institution, and they wanted her to compile an anthology uh, which took the subjects, I think, of lectures that had been given there and developed them in some way or another. I expect they thought some poetic way or another, shudder. I got this wrong and thought you had to just choose a title of one of the lectures and spin off from that. So my choice was, because I couldn't find a title that I liked, uh, a lecture which had been called From Metals with a Memory to Brilliant Light-Emitting Solids. And I was just going to write this sort of chipper little poem about how impossible it was to write a poem with a title like that. Yeah, so in other words, it was going to be a five-finger exercise. And um, I hope, you know, amusing, I thought, I hoped. And this was when we were bombing Afghanistan for the first time. And it, we weren't yet in Iraq, but there was this thing in the air the notion of a step that we were going to take that couldn't be retreated from. And I sat down to write this poem, and this extraordinary thing happened. It's nothing like that had ever quite happened to me before. The poem changed under my hand, and I found that the metals were the memory, which I guess are, you know, actually spectacles that when you sit on them spring back into shape uh, became smart bombs and the brilliant light emitting solids which I expect are light bulbs that never go out or last forever uh, became what they hit i.e. people and I was really taken aback by this poem really taken aback and then not long after I'd written it so let's say six months 
these little poems started, they were not quite so little, but these poems started arriving. And I wasn't quite sure what they were until they started to get titles, oddly enough. And then I could see that they had to do with war zones. And I'd also been writing little fragments of things. And I thought, well, these are obviously going to sort of build into poems at some point. But then I could see that the fragments were the point. That was what they were. And they became the dispatches sections, which are um, incomplete and appear to be accounts of uh, engagements that I don't know somebody's written and maybe the person in question was in a firefight or in a uh, in an explosion and they become damaged burned charred partial take the poem the sniper yeah tell me how you created that did you think yourself into the head of because it's a very convincing evocation of what it what it's like to be up in a, a tower and looking down in a square and to be a sniper mm. Was that a sort of willed effort to, to think yourself into that man's head, or did it did it come about more indirectly than that? Well, figures in isolation are big in my work, um, and he's a figure in isolation. But but that particular poem and a number of the other poems in in um, Legion, it should be said, although some come from other sources. There's a poem, a Second World War poem, for example, that uses images uh, that I drew from one, my, an experience that my father had um, that I didn't know about. He didn't tell me about it. Somebody else told me about it. But a number of those poems have to do with um, the Siege of Sarajevo. And I just knew um, a lot of people in Sarajevo. I had been back and forth to Sarajevo, um, having been sent by initially by the British Council and then was asked to go back and... Um, read at other festivals and read at the Writers' Union and co-edited an anthology of British and Irish poetry for for the Writers' Union. And in fact gave a reading at the Writers' Union which was attended by um, Radvan Karadzic, uh, who of course liked to think of himself as a poet, and came up to me and said, uh, hello, and I liked your poetry, and I too am a poet. And, and um, it wasn't until somebody, a friend of mine from Sarajevo, pointed out to me later that Karadzic had been at this reading and had introduced himself to me that I realized I'd met this grotesque and terrible man. So Goran Simic, who, uh, whose siege poems I made versions of, is clearly an influence. Not what he wrote, but the fact that he was besieged and the fact that I worked on those poems to bring them into English versions, not translations, I don't speak. Bosnian, but um, and I think because of talking to Goran about things uh, after the Bosnian War was over, and following it very closely because I had lots of friends in Sarajevo, and seeing one or two films that were shown in various parts of London by people who had managed to get out of the siege, and they they were just raw footage, not at all edited, and almost impossible to watch. I think those experiences and those images informed a lot of those poems. And one of the things I knew was that the guys, the kids who were in the hills around Sarajevo, drunk on slivovitz at 10 in the morning and shooting into something like a fishbowl. I mean, if ever you've been up in the hills in Sarajevo and looked down into the city, you can see exactly what you're shooting at. There were no mistakes. There were no errant bombs. And I knew that they were people who had known the people that they were shooting at. So that's why in The Sniper he talks about 
the way in which he used to occupy the city before he became somebody who um, was uh, is there in isolation and and has this realm of power. Could I get you to read the sniper? Mm. Sniper. I am tucked up here out of sight. I am tucked up here in the bell tower of Our Lady of Retribution, my own space well stocked and arranged just so. This tower was raised in the year blank blank, the year of the crow, the year of our disgrace. I am tucked up here in the shadow of the cross, with my earmuffs, with my quilt and pallias, kneeling up but looking down like a man at prayer. A woman carrying water crosses the square. She is running slowly, running not to spill. Then a child out into clear view, going a long diagonal and running like a hare, jink jink. I am tucked up here, a sure thing with my sausage and beer and a field stove to keep my fingers supple. Days pass. I'm more than content in my snuggery, my lair. I have somewhere to lay my head and somewhere to piss and for comic disputation, the birds of the air. With the scope pulled up to my eye, the world is close and particular. This grandad hugging the shade, each hair on his head, the wet of his eye, the pre-war coin on his fob chain, the weave of his coat. Over there by my friend the Marlborough man is where I would sit with my morning coffee. Arno's place, its pinball machine, its jukebox, the girl with Madonna's face until she showed her teeth. I would tilt my chair to the wall and take the sun. They go in fear. They go in fear of me, and where they go, they go by my good grace. I am tucked up here with plenty left in store. The night sky floods, then clears, flagging a single star, and the city settles to silence under my peace. The woman, the child, the granddad are nothing or nothing more than what history can ignore or love erase. Thank you. There was a hair in that poem. Yeah. And I <laughs> I really have to ask you about the hair in your work because hairs seem to be a if you pardon the pun, a running a running <laughs> theme. Yes. You must have been asked about this before, but where 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 do the hairs come from? Tell me about them. Well I grew up in the country. I was born in Devon. I grew up in Midbucks at a time before Midbucks was kind of concreted over. And I used to see brown hairs, and they always struck me, even before I knew this, as uh, utterly unlike rabbits. They struck me as kind of strange, witchy critters, which, of course, they are. I later then discovered that um, the hair really was the witch's familiar. I think the confusion about it being a cat or black cat usually came about because the huntsman's name for the hare is Puss. In any event, uh, Isabel Gowdy, famously burned as a witch, um, had that little 
the confession line of confession which uh, went you know I shall go into a hair with a cry and a scream and muckle care then when I was after I left school I went to work in a bookshop and I came across a book by a guy called John Layard called The Lady of the Hair and he was a, psych a psychoanalyst in fact he was Peter Redgrove's psychoanalyst I think I hope I'm not traducing uh, Redgrove there he'd written a book half of which was a psychoanalytical study of a woman who was having hair dreams. The other half was uh, a cultural history of the hair. I just came across it completely by accident and it fascinated me. I was gripped by it and I was gripped by the hair and I was fascinated by the fact that, that uh, I always think of the hair as the f in, the, in the feminine. She's the feminine principle to me that she crops up in virtually every culture and at every time in every culture. The Chinese have a, a hair cult and a hair figure in their mythologies. The Saxon moon goddess or wears her hair's cape on and carries um, a silver disc, which refers to the moon. Because most cultures, when they look at the moon, don't see a man in the moon, they see a hair. So the hair is linked to silver coins and uh, silver discs and so on. Anyway, all this buried itself in my subconscious, I guess, and surfaced in ways that uh, I could neither prevent nor wanted to. So the hair started sort of elbowing her way into my work, and she kept cropping up as an image of almost of misrule, certainly of witchiness, certainly of as a, as a sort of lone figure. And, and as a trickster. And the hair is a trickster. In lots of cultures, the hair is a trickster. And then she managed to get herself center stage in the second sequence in marriage, this sequence called Lepus. So I think it was, it was simply finding Layard's book and, being, and having a half-formed interest anyway. And I've been dipping into that book for years now. David Harsant. Night is available now in paperback, as are his previous collection Legion and his selected poems. You can find out more by visiting the Faber website at faber.co.uk. And if you click on the podcast tab, you'll be able to hear my previous programmes in the Conversations with Faber Poets series, in which my guests have been Michael Hoffman, Emma Jones and Joe Shapcott. I'll be back again soon for another Faber podcast, and I hope you can join me again for that. Until then... Thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.